Awesome. <clears throat> I am really, uh, really excited about this series. I think this is going to be um, a conversation that is very foundational for us as a community. I think it's going to help shape our culture, form our theology. I think it's going to uh, speak into how we handle and approach Scripture. And a couple things I want to just say right at the outset are, are this. Uh, among those things, we want to be a community that does not shy away from the difficult, the weird, the bizarre parts of Scripture. And in doing so, we want to be a community that is generous enough for anyone to be able to bring their, their doubts, their questions. We want to be a church for people who are in process, not people who think that they are already a finished process or finished product. Maybe we, we could even say it this way. We want discovery to be safe enough to explore questions and doubts, but then also dangerous enough to actually be transformed by what we find, to actually be challenged and changed by the good news of Jesus. So this is where we're going, and this is what we're going to be exploring for the next several weeks. But first, I uh, just want to do a couple of things here real fast uh, and say um, welcome again to Discovery, especially if you are new or visiting or if you are a student, welcome back. If you're a student in particular, well done getting to church this morning. That seems like uh, you should get a gold star or something for uh, coming to church on your first Sunday back. Um, my name, by the way, is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery and uh, really, really excited about this new season that we're entering into as a church. And so you just heard in the announcements a variety of ways that you can be getting connected and plugged in, whether that's as a student with that lunch, which is exactly what it sounds like, free lunch for students. We're very good at naming things here, as you noticed. <laughs> but whether it's that or getting plugged into a discovery group or, or coming to the, the class that we're going to be doing here in a couple of weeks, all great opportunities to get connected to the, the life of our church. Now is as good a time as any to do that. So I would just uh, encourage you to take advantage of those things as they are available during this season. All right, let's pause here for a moment. I want to pray, and then we will we'll jump into our paradoxology conversation. All right, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gift of today, every day a gift and in particular, this Sunday, God, we are grateful for what this day signifies, both the beginning of a new academic calendar, a new season, and a new chapter in the life of our church. And so, God, would you use this conversation that we enter into now, as challenging as it might be, as difficult as it might be to name and wrestle with some of these tensions, some of these questions, God, would you show up in unexpected and surprising ways? Would we find that in the exploration of these questions, that you become more real to us, that your love and your grace become more tangible in our lives and in the ways that we love and interact with the people around us. God, I pray now for those who, who come into this space this morning, maybe not even thinking about some of these bigger questions, just trying to figure out how to make it through the day, concerned, worried with, with what lies ahead in, in the coming week. God, would you take our concerns and hold them for us during this time so that we could be free to hear your voice and to respond in whatever way that we need to respond. Give us the courage to take even one step this morning as you speak to us and lead us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. 
All right, well, let's start with this. This is a picture, or a couple of pictures anyway, of Amy and I being whisked away from our wedding ceremony off to our honeymoon. You'll notice how young and good-looking we are. Thank you for that. (laughs) You'll also notice, and what I really want you guys to pay attention to, is this car that we are about to get into. And you can put that next picture up there. I don't know if you guys can see it that well on the screen right now, but this is a 1969 Pontiac GTO. All right, okay. Got some car people here, which is good because the irony of this picture is that out of the three people seated in this car, my dad is driving and then Amy, my wife, and I were sitting in the back seat. Out of the three people in this car, Amy is the only car person in the car. She grew up going to car shows with her dad, me and my dad, not car people at all. So the question here is, how does my dad, a non-car guy, come into possession of a 1969 GTO? My dad was a pastor for over 40 years, and one day he's sitting in his office when this guy walks in, drops a set of keys on his desk, and says, God told me to give you my car. And my dad is thinking like, oh no, It's going to be like a 1982 Ford Pinto or just, you know, some sort of old jalopy like that. And the guy points out the window and my dad looks out the window and there is this classic American cherry red muscle car sitting in the parking lot. Now, I just want to pause there for a minute and ask the question, have you heard a story like this? Have you heard these kinds of tales where someone is told by God to do something and it sounds a little bit crazy, and yet they do it. God told me to do this. And you're like, what? God told you to do that? By the way, this is not me trying to subtly say, you know, give me your car or your, your vacation house or, you know, whatever. I mean, if God speaks, but <laughs> not the point of the story. What do we do with these, right? A lot of times, at least for me, I'm usually fairly skeptical. Did God really tell you to do that? Maybe you're weirded out. Maybe you're even a little bit jealous. Jealous because God doesn't speak to you that way or jealous because you want a classic American muscle car (laughs) given to you. What do we do with these kinds of experiences? Our first paradox, what we're calling the Abraham paradox, is born out of one of these moments where God asks someone to do something that is crazy. And actually, when we look at the whole of Abraham's story, you see that God did this several times, asked him to do something that seemed a little bit insane. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to start. We're going to be all over the place here this morning. But we're starting in Genesis chapter 22. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will come around and make sure you have a Bible. We have a high value here at Discovery on people actually having a physical copy of the Bible. So if you need one, Get one and feel free to even take it with you today. Genesis 22. Just going to look at the first couple of verses here for a moment. Verse 1 begins like this Some time later. If you have the ESV, it might say, After these things. Some time later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I 
will show you. So here we go, right out of the gate, this just insane command that God gives to Abraham. Go kill your son. This should raise a whole bunch of questions for us. What is God doing here? Why would he make this kind of ask? Is God some sort of cruel being who likes to mess with people, put them through these impossible tests? Is God okay with with traumatizing children? And then what's going on with Abraham? Why would he go along with this? On top of all this, to make things even a little bit more complicated, when we turn to the New Testament, we oftentimes read these these really glowing reports of a character like Abraham. Look at Romans chapter 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now what happens here, and I've seen this in so many conversations with people over the years, is that we get this idea, if you just look at at a passage like Romans 4, we get this idea that we have to be just like Abraham. That we have to be perfectly obedient to whatever God asks of us. And if we waver at all, if we have any kind of doubts, then we're doing it wrong. Or we're going to get punished somehow. Or God is going to be upset with us. But the problem with that and the problem with only looking at this particular scene is that we miss the full richness of the Abraham story. Which is a story, when you look at the whole thing, all the ups and downs that Abraham and his wife Sarah go through, I think it is a really good gift to those of us who do have doubts or who, or who feel like we could never measure up to Abraham's standards. So what I want to do here for just a moment, we're going to very quickly move through a big chunk of Scripture as we look at the whole of Abraham's story. <clears throat> so to do this, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1 through 11 forms a prologue, not just to the book of Genesis, but really to the whole of Scripture. It's kind of like the first 20 minutes of the Lord of the Rings, where, (laughs) it is, where you get all of this background, right, about how the ring was formed and these ancient battles that happened thousands of years uh, before, all this kind of context. And then about 20 minutes in, the camera sort of swoops down in onto the Shire and onto the Hobbits. And that's when the story really begins. Scripture actually works in a very similar kind of way. This prologue shows us that God creates the world and calls it good. Everything is in the, the, the proper order, the way that he wants it to function best. And then human beings in Genesis 3 rebel against this good order. And then chapters 4 through 11 look at the fallout of that rebellion. And what you see there is this repeated pattern of violence, and death. And when you get to the end of that prologue, there's this massive question hanging over Scripture. What is God going to do about this? Is God going to intervene and end this cycle of sin and death and violence? Or is this just the way it is going to be forever and ever and ever? So then the camera focuses in on this guy, 
Abraham or Abram as he's known at this point in the story. This is the beginning of the answer to that question. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. If you have your Bible, just flip back over there a few pages. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the key phrase, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Here we begin to get the picture. God does have an answer to this cycle of sin and violence and death. And a significant part of that answer is this family, this community of blessing that begins inexplicably with this guy Abram. Now, this is Abram's first encounter with God. And we're told in the very next verse that he is 75 years old. Now, just think about that for a moment. The most significant moment in your life may not come until you are in retirement. He's 75 years old when God shows up. He's lived a decent life. We, we find out that he's run a business and made a nice living. He's fairly well off, connected to a lot of people, and he certainly would have had an established worldview and religious life. But the one thing that Abraham did not have was kids. Now, the book of Genesis, if you ever take the opportunity to read all the way through it, you'll notice that it's full of genealogies, these lists, these long lists sometimes of names that we don't have any idea how to pronounce. And if you're, again, trying to read through it, this is oftentimes where we check out or we just skip over it because it's long and boring and we have no idea who all these people are and why can't we say any of their names? These genealogies, though, serve a very, very significant structural purpose in the book of Genesis. Genesis is divided into toledots. Toledot is a Hebrew word. It gets translated into English as generations of or the account of. And so each toledot, each account, marks a shift in the story, like the beginning of a new chapter. Abraham's story falls within the toledot of Terah, Abram's father, and this mention at the very end of Genesis 11 of Sarai's barrenness is very ominous. It's this big flashing light, this big signal that this Toledot is going to end. The account of Terah will only last one generation. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, God shows up and says, No, does not end here. You are going to have kids. I just need you to move. Leave everything that you know behind. Go to this new place that I will show you. And Abraham does it. Uproots 75 years of life to start over on this new journey with this new God. Now again, we're going to just sort of blast right through the rest of the story, so hang with me here. Next, there's a famine. Abram builds on this new land that God gives him. He thinks that his wife is pretty hot, and so he freaks out about this lies about her, calls her his sister, sort of throws his wife under the bus. By the way, this is not a good idea if you are married. And yet somehow at the end of it, he, he, he comes out ahead in this whole thing. But anyway, this moment where Abraham freaks out, bails on the land that God had told him to go to, and throws his wife under the bus. Then chapter 15, God comes back. 
He reassures Abram of his promise, particularly this promise that you will have children. You will have offspring. And so God and Abram, what they do is they take some animals and they cut the animals in half and they walk through as a way to signify the seriousness of the agreement. This is, you know, like you do when you're making a big promise. (laughs) And then we're told this, and this is one of the most important verses in the entire Abraham story. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So we have this low point, escape to Egypt, lie about your wife, this high point, new commitment, promise with God, Abraham, credit to him as righteous, and then another low moment. The very next chapter, chapter 16, we're told that Abraham is now 86 years old. This has been 11 years now since God first showed up in his life and gave him this promise of offspring. They still haven't had kids. And so Abram and Sarah are getting restless. When is this going to happen? When is God going to come through on what he promised us? And so Sarah thinks, I have a great idea. Abram, I want you to sleep with my servant. Maybe you can get her pregnant. And this will be the way that God gives us the children that he promised. And Abraham goes, okay, great idea. (laughs) And sure enough, he gets her pregnant. She has this son. And then God comes and says, no, no, this is not actually how this is supposed to happen. And as you might imagine, it creates this very awkward situation and all kinds of family dysfunction for Abram that he has to deal with for, for many more years moving forward. Now, a very interesting thing happens here. There's a 13-year break in the action. 13 years where we, we don't really know what's going on. Chapter 16, we're told Abraham is 86. The beginning of chapter 17, all of a sudden he's 99. 13 years of waiting. God again shows up. This is where he changes everyone's name from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah reiterates this promise of a large family, a land to call home, and then God says, here's the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And Abraham's like, what? Like we couldn't do a handshake or something? (laughs) Some of you, it took a little while to figure out what was going on there. All right, now, chapter 18, and this deserves a little bit more attention God shows up yet again, and he says, it's really going to happen now. In fact, it's going to happen within the next year. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So she laughed. She laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, how will I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And then this is really funny to me. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he, this is God, said, no, you did laugh. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. This is like my kids at the breakfast table every morning. Then finally, chapter 21, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. 
And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised, and Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Now, this brings us back to where we started. Again, some time later, after these things, these things being all of the events of chapters 12 through 21. Most commentators believe that when God comes to Abraham and asks for Isaac as a sacrifice, that the boy was of age, meaning that he was probably about 12 years old. And so at this point, Abraham has been journeying with God for almost 40 years. 40 years of relating to this God who asks him to do crazy things, who makes these crazy promises, and who eventually comes through on those promises, even if it isn't in the timing that Abraham wanted or thought, even when Abraham and Sarah don't get it, even when they laugh in God's face. So what do we do with all of this? What do we make of this story? What do we do with the Abraham, the Abraham paradox, which we might summarize this way, the God who asks for everything but needs nothing. Leaning into this paradox in the Abraham story reveals that following God is this invitation, not a series of tests, an invitation to a lifelong journey of refining faith. A process that produces joy. Let me say that one more time. Following God is an invitation to a lifelong journey of refining faith. A process that produces joy. Now let's dig into this a little bit more and then we'll draw some conclusions and ask some questions. So back to Genesis chapter 22. God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. There are a lot of parallels here to the very first time that God shows up in Abraham's life. Once again, God tells Abraham to go. Once again, he tells him to go somewhere, and he's not totally clear on where exactly they're going. Abraham goes unsure of the final destination. But this time, the big difference between here And when God shows up in Genesis chapter 12 is that Abraham, I think, understands and knows the cost. And he goes anyway. I don't think he knew fully what he was getting himself into when he moved his family to the land that God showed him. But here he knows the cost and he goes anyway and he even seems ready to go through with it. Builds this this altar, sets Isaac on top of it, pulls out his knife, is ready to do the deed when the angel of the Lord calls out to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And for the second time in the story, Abraham says, here I am. The angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns, and he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be 
provided. Now this location, Mount Moriah, what Abraham names the Lord will provide, it becomes a significant location in the story of Scripture. It's here that Abraham's descendants build a city called Jerusalem. And it's here where Solomon builds a temple for this people to go and worship and, and to participate in this system of making sacrifices where they would go and they would kill an animal as a way to make right relationship between themselves and God. The temple, it was also believed that God physically dwelt there. It was the focal point of their social and religious life. And it is also very near to this place that Jesus will die on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice, as the end to this system of making sacrifices. So where Jesus took on sin and death and violence as a definitive answer to the problem, the question that hangs over those first 11 chapters of Scripture. And so as, as bizarre, as crazy as this scene is, God is trying to tell us something very, very important here. He says to Abraham and to us, I do have a plan. I do have an answer to the problem of sin and death. And that answer is not what you can give or what you can do for me. That answer is me. And I will give everything that I have. So yes, God does ask for everything, but God also gives everything. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Now, again, this story, the Abraham paradox, I think there's at least, probably way more than three, but there's at least three things here for us to sit with and to wrestle with, some questions for us to ask. So the first thing here is I think we do well to remember that faith is a journey. And if you were around this summer for our series in the Psalms, this should sound familiar to you. Okay, faith is a journey. Abraham's age is mentioned over and over and over again in his story. And certainly part of that is reminding us just how miraculous it is that this old man had a kid. But I think it also is there to reinforce for us how this story unfolds over a long period of time. Yeah, God comes and makes some incredible promises and comes through for Abraham and Sarah in miraculous ways, but they are very human. And they make some significant mistakes. And their patience runs out. And they struggle with this promise that God has given them. Thirteen years of silence. It is a process. It is a journey. Far too many of us, we want to be the Romans 4 version of Abraham. This polished, finished product. But we forget it took Abraham 40 years to get to that place. 40 years in some remarkable circumstances. 
for me, the Abraham story has been one of the most reassuring stories and truths in all of Scripture. That faith is a journey and that God is working with us over this long period of time. When I was 19 years old, I thought I had my life all figured out. This might be a weird vision for life, but this is where I was at the stage of my life. Okay, I, I had gotten accepted into this accelerated dental program. And I thought I was going to be a dentist. I was going to fix people's teeth. And I was going to live in Santa Cruz right by the beach. And I was going to go surfing a lot. And that sounded like a pretty good, pretty good life. In some ways, it still kind of does. But at that point in my life, God showed up and he asked me to do something crazy, to walk away from all of that and instead spend my life helping people discover the good news about Jesus. And it's been a process. It's been a journey. There's been a lot of ups and downs. Certainly some moments of assurance and reassurance, but also many, many, many moments of doubt and discouragement and disobedience, moments of tragedy and tears. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit philosopher and paleontologist, which, by the way, that's an awesome job description. Jesuit philosopher and paleontologist. He wrote, above all, trust in the slow work of God. Trust in the slow work of God. One of the questions the Abraham paradox asks of us is, are we looking to God for a quick fix? For a magic wand? Or do we trust his slow work? Second, on this journey, we will need to confront our idols. The Abraham story, I think sometimes it's framed as a story about belief versus unbelief or faith versus doubt. But I think that the thing behind the thing with Abraham is worship. Will Abraham and Sarah worship God? Or will they worship his promises to them? Will they worship Isaac? Or will they worship the one who gave them Isaac? And their story, again, when you consider the texture of it, the ups and the downs, the, the, the moments where they get it and the moments where they don't get it, what we see is that it is so easy to trust something other than God. Whether that's this promise of children, whether that's money, whether that's career goals, whether that's meaning and achievement, our own hopes and dreams for what our life is going to look like, anything can become an idol, an object of our worship. Again, at 19, God changed the trajectory of my life, but it, has not, it was not like a radical overnight transformation. It's been this long process. It's been almost now 20 years of God confronting my idols over and over and over again. For me, my idols are named security, comfort, self-reliance, competence, probably a long list of other things. Those gods... Lower G gods are always lurking there for me. But what I've learned, and again, what I think the Abraham paradox teaches us, is that when God surprises us, when God demands the impossible or the unexpected, this is a really good sign. Because it means we are connecting with the real God. Not a God of our own creation who agrees with us at every single turn. 
Abraham and Sarah show us that when God is smashing our idols, we are actually encountering the true and the living God. So when we say God asks for everything, this is not the demand of, of some dictator. This is an invitation to give our whole selves, our whole hearts, an invitation to trust and to worship him alone. So the question here is, what idols need to be smashed in your life? Now the third thing, this journey with God produces joy. One of my favorite parts of Abraham and Sarah's story is that Isaac, his name literally means he will laugh. There's that moment where Sarah laughs in response to God's ridiculous promise that she will bear a son. And of course, in the moment, it's a lack of faith on her part. But naming Isaac, he will laugh, is a way of redeeming that part of her story. I love that. My journey with God has definitely made my life more complicated. And that's not a a, a lament or I'm not looking, you know, for some sort of pity party here. It's just real. There's this persistent lie that faith, that, that following Jesus will make your life better. And I hate to say it, but that's just not going to be true. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Life with Jesus is better, but your life will be more complicated. Abraham's life, far more simpler, those 75 years before God showed up. And, and I live a life now as a, as a pastor, as someone who has to be on stage in front of people. This is so far out of my comfort zone, you guys. I would never have picked this for myself. <laughs> life with Jesus for me is, is not easier, but I do believe and know that it is better And we've just experienced this as a family over and over again in a million different ways. God's provision, God's grace in our lives. And we know a laughter and a joy that we would not know if we lived a different kind of life. There's a kind of laughter that only comes on the other side of struggle. That comes from wrestling honestly with our fears and our questions and our doubts and coming out on the other side of that and realizing the story doesn't end there. There's more to this. Abraham and Sarah laugh because there's no other possible response to the ridiculousness of what they live through. Now Abraham is often called the father of our faith. But I don't think it's because he was the first one to mentally agree and sign off on some doctrinal statement. Abraham is the father of our faith because he experienced firsthand that God's plan for saving his creation was to bring dead things back to life. Again, his, his toledot was done. This was a genealogical dead end. There were no kids coming for Sarah and Abraham. And even when God did provide this miraculous son, Abraham is able to say, God himself will provide. Because Abraham realized that God's answer to sin and death is resurrection. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. 
So some questions for us here. Are there areas in your life that feel dead? That are in need of resurrection? Do you trust this God, this living, active God to bring resurrection to your life? When you live in the Abraham paradox, when you let God lead you into the great unknown, when you trust the slow work of God, when you let God be the unpredictable idol smasher that he is, when you see dead things come back to life, you worship wholeheartedly and you laugh. And then you keep going and you keep your eyes open because this journey is not over yet. In fact, you may just be getting started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it gives me so much encouragement to know that you started the process of redemption with with Abraham, who said yes to you in a lot of ways, but also struggled through doubts, through impatience, through years of silence. And yet this family becomes the family from which your plan of blessing, your plan of salvation is launched. God, help us to trust that you are doing something, that this journey that we are on is headed somewhere. Help us to trust your slow work. God, give us the courage to confront and name our idols, and would you just smash those for us this morning? And then finally, God, would we know and believe that you bring dead things back to life. That in Jesus, you have definitively said sin has lost its power, death has lost its power, and you are in the business of bringing the dead back to life. May we trust that power, God, in our own life. So, Father, this morning as we, as we close uh, in worship and singing, would you continue to do that work in us? And again, would you give us the courage to respond in whatever way we need to respond this morning? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.